Welcome to Streaming Into the Void, where we discuss all the streaming news for the week ending February 18th, 2023. This week, Ted Lasso returns and hopefully saves us from Zaslav. I'm Kim Hollis, and Hogwarts Legacy tried to put me in Hufflepuff, but I'm Ravenclaw, damn it. With me are Tim Bridey, content creator and gamer, embracing positivity. You know, positive outlook, positive about life in general, positive for COVID. Wait, wait a minute. Oh, no. Yeah, I'm okay, but this kind of sucks. Also, David Mumpower, author of Disney Demystified, streaming media analyst, and spending all his massive gamblings thanks to Tim being a witch. That's right. Tells did not, in fact, fail. Did not fail. Thank you, Tim. (laughs) Actually, that was the only thing I got right about the game. (laughs) (laughs) And the podcast is produced and edited by Raul Burriel, who was on the receiving end of George Santos' Super Bowl winning touchdown pass last Sunday. Good job. Thanks, chat GPT. (laughs) Now, now why didn't I bet on that? (laughs) We'll start this week with a couple of big programming announcements. Apple TV Plus announced the release date of season three of Ted Lasso, and it was revealed that Netflix would be losing all five seasons of Arrested Development. The last new episode of Ted Lasso we got was on October 8th, 2021. The new season premieres March 15th. That's 17 months. Oh, my God. We're getting 12 new episodes wrapping up on May 31st. And that's it. That's the end of Ted Lasso, folks. We're going to have to obsess about something else. Are are you sure that's the end of Ted Lasso? Who's ready for beard? (laughs) Yeah, I think the (laughs) (laughs) Illinois state people stay together. The odds of Ted Lasso ending right now really depend entirely on whether or not Apple is broke. So I feel like there's going to be at least, I don't know, 17 more seasons of Ted Lasso, but we'll see. The Arrested Development news is because the rights are expiring. Yes, it's a licensing nightmare. Arrested Development was originally produced by 20th Century Fox when it aired on the Fox network, which means that the rights are now reverting back to Disney, where the show will end up, whether on Hulu or somewhere else at this point is anybody's guess. Although I feel the prime period for this program has passed. And I don't know that these rights are going to get as much as if they were trying to sell the rights like even five years ago. People got mad at this online for some reason, even though it's been the the, the initial season of new episodes on Netflix came out in 2013. And then there was an initial season that was 2018 and 2019. But like, come on, when was the last time you really watched it? And now all of a sudden you're mad it's gone. Yeah. And I think there's a bigger story here along those lines. If you think about it, the reinvention of Arrested Development with new seasons was kind of the first of its kind in streaming. So in a way, the fact that these rights are expiring is the end of really the first true decade of streaming as the dominant medium. Yeah, that's true. This was the first show where the network canceled it. And then a few years later, someone said, hey, wait, we have all this money. Why don't we reboot a show that people liked? And now it's a business model. Yes. Replaced by another business model wherein shows just disappear off streaming services. 
There's a slew of fast service news this week as Roku posted better than expected financial earnings in Q4 of 2022. The set-top box manufacturer expanded their free ad-supported content on the Roku channel. Meanwhile, a report emerged this week that Fox has turned down a $2 billion offer to buy their fast streaming service, Tubi. Meanwhile, Dish Network's Sling TV is relaunching their fast streaming service as Free Stream. And yet the end appears near for free ad-supported streaming at Peacock as Comcast announced that its Xfinity subscribers would lose free access to Peacock this summer. All right, I'm going to surprise you all by resisting the opportunity to hit Peacock here for a second. I do want to point out Fox just purchased Tubi in 2020. It used some of the money it got from Disney to do that. And it only paid less than $450 million, which means that offer more than quadrupled their investment in three years and they turned it down. That is how much everyone is rushing to fast. And they turned it down despite the fact that it's a money loser. Yeah, they apparently lost $50 million on this last quarter, and yet people are still going, ooh, let's run fast, which tells a lot about the thinking and anticipation in this industry. So, David, you know the thing that you just said about how this is kind of the end of the first decade of streaming as a medium? Remember the appeal of streaming initially was no ads? Now, guess what everyone's going for? Ads. Yes. I don't even know what we're doing at this point. I mean, Wait, did, didn't Tubi have Super Bowl commercials too? Or am I thinking of another the other, another fast? Okay. Yeah, they did. Okay. Yeah, I, I was not a fan of that Super Bowl commercial. Look, CNBC ran a feature last week where they asked industry insiders like Barry Diller, Jeff Zucker, and Kevin Meyer what the future of TV would look like. It turns out we already know the future of TV looks a lot like TV, what these fast services are offering is basically what we already have, but through a streamer, it's a grid of channels, it's linear, and it's got ads. It's disheartening to see that we've gone through all this shakeup just to end up where we were before. There are certainly better options. Many of these fast services also offer on-demand content, although that's supplemented with ads. And we can still pay the premium prices and get on-demand content without ads. But it's like everyone's just discovered linear ad-supported TV. Come on. Yeah, this is as full circle as this industry gets right now. We have said all along Bob Iger's plan for Disney Plus was to reinvent Disney's cable services on streaming. That was his idea. What has happened almost as a byproduct of all these behaviors is that people have realized they're not willing to give up ad revenue. And that's despite the fact that ad revenue has been terrible for the last nine months. I mean, just absolutely disastrous. So every one of these earnings reports starts with an apology. Hey, we didn't make as much because ad revenue was down and yet everyone is running to fast. And Raul, can you explain that to me? There is a fixed amount of revenue that comes from that. And you do have to consider that this approach is probably better than the cable or satellite approach that these companies have had for decades now. Bob Iger, I think, is right to want to reinvent what Disney has had before, but on streaming, because what do they call this? They call it direct to consumer. You are selling Disney Plus, you are selling Hulu, you are selling ESPN Plus direct to consumer, and you cut out the middleman. What they're wanting to do here is they're, they're wanting to cut out companies like Comcast, Charter, Cox, Dish Network, DirecTV, even Verizon. They want 100% of all the revenue that comes from you watching their content. And that's why they do this. Unfortunately, they have to build out the infrastructure 
infrastructure for that to happen first. And that is where all the expense is going. It will presumably become a profitable endeavor at some point for some. It already is chiefly Netflix. But in wait the a minute, though. wait a minute, isn't that what we've been saying about streaming this whole time? And now they're saying, wait, 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 that's not as easy as it sounds. It's not just because they have a streaming service, whether it's an on-demand streaming service or an ad supported streaming service that suddenly you you fall into profit. I think what everybody's chasing after here is the gold rush that is Pluto. Pluto TV over at Paramount is a very successful fast streaming service. But just because you're launching your own fast streaming service doesn't mean that you now have Pluto any more than if you were to launch an on-demand streaming service today, would you have Netflix? Netflix took years to get to where they were and Pluto TV took years to get to where they were. You have to build up that audience and you have to build out that infrastructure first. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing here. You're using the term gold rush and it feels like the actual gold rush in the, you know, there's all these anecdotal stories from history about how people would move from town to town saying, I heard there's gold here. I heard there's gold here. And then there was never gold. And so we're seeing the same thing with streaming where all the people who don't really understand what they're doing have already done the sunk cost fallacy. They've spent all this money. They believe that this is going to happen. So they're just chasing around going, I don't know what's everyone else doing. Let's do that. As if that will put them ahead of the marketplace. Raul and I was very proud of a conversation we had privately the other night where we were piecing together what's going to happen next. And there are so many opportunities out there if people would just take a moment, pause and see what's going to happen next. Part of what's going to happen next is linear television is not going to go away, is it, Roll? It's going to diminish and diminish and diminish, but there's too much existing infrastructure. It's like AOL subscriptions. That's going to need content, isn't it? Yeah, it would be a fallacy to ever say that TV is going to die any more than back in the 1950s. Anyone who would tell you that radio was going to die would be wrong. It simply gets reinvented into something else. Back before television became a thing in people's living rooms, people listened to their radio dramas. There was a lot of shows, in fact, that became television hits in the 1950s that originally started as radio shows. But eventually, all of that moved over to television and radio had to reinvent itself and it became essentially a, a medium for music and talk radio. What And if we reinvent it to more modern times, people were saying that, you know, XM radio, all of these satellite services would die. They haven't. Now they have combined. And I think that's the future of linears. We're just going to see contraction, contraction, contraction. But that's what's happened here as well. And now we're looking at fast and fast is just going to be the new streaming version of that, isn't it? So they're parallels we should be drawing that people aren't. Exactly. What what we have come to understand, and we see this frequently with Netflix and the fact that people will just binge watch hundreds of episodes of, I don't know, NCIS, is that people don't mind turning on the TV and then just letting it run. That was, for better or worse, what the paradigm was for linear broadcast television for years where you would turn on the TV and rather than have to change a channel, you'd just watch the next program, the next program, the next program. That was that was the hallmark of success on, say, must-see TV on NBC on Thursday nights, where so long as you started with a very strong show, every other show behind it could be crap and people would still watch it and it would get great ratings. That paradigm is now shifting to streaming, mostly to fast, where you get entire channels dedicated to certain programs. We are going to get entire channels dedicated 
to God help us Westworld, but yes, also shows like Baywatch and Knight Rider and I don't know, Gilligan's Island. And you could just put that on and 24 seven, all you're going to get is episodes of Gilligan's Island and people will consume that. And the streamer will make revenue because between the episodes and into the episodes, you're going to get ads. And so what's going to happen to television now is that they're going to need to find some other kind of content. Television is not going to die. It's simply going to change into something new. I think we're going to start seeing that almost immediately starting next television season when the CW has now essentially canceled almost all originally all original programming they had. And so it really begs the question. So what shows will appear or what programming will appear on broadcast television once everything has jumped to streaming? Yeah, I think that's the long and short of this. As a matter of fact, one of the people, one of the experts interviewed in that article says what we've been thinking for a while. There is no point putting anything exclusively on broadcast television at this point. It's the Iger thing he said a couple of weeks ago where I made the analogy. It's like going to a restaurant where you pay once and then you know you're going to have leftovers for a future meal. You should not be releasing anything on broadcast television unless you have several other distribution models in place to monetize it. So we're going to see less and less original content on linear, correct? Absolutely, because there's more value to it to put it on a streaming service. And what we're starting to see is that there's there's that value in double dipping it where you can make it on demand in one place. So, for instance, we can have all the Avengers movies on Disney Plus that you can watch on demand. But Disney also licenses out those movies to another streaming service, thus double dipping, making twice as much revenue because they both get their subscriber revenue from the subscribers to Disney Plus, but then also the licensing revenue from, you know what, you can watch a handful of Avengers movies right now on stars. And that's so, not even the only thing. I mean, right now, if you have TNT or TBS access, you can watch some of HBO's recent titles like True Blood and Silicon Valley, which they are now sanitizing so that you get rid of all the swearing and sex scenes so that they're playable on cable television. And so they're monetizing their own content catalog and creating super, super cheap content for cable television, which, you know, makes you wonder why you're paying so much for cable television if that's all you're getting. I do feel that this latter component is almost a means of propping up a platform until it is simply not viable anymore. I honestly don't think that TNT and TV are going to be around for much longer. Yeah, this, this is, is a desperate survival move. I completely agree. Mm-hmm. The only revenue they get, well, they get two sources of revenue on cable channels like TNT and TBS. A, they get advertiser revenue. That money goes to the broadcast company, TNT and TBS, and the parent company, Warner Brothers Discovery. The second revenue stream comes from the cable company who charges you as a consumer for access to that cable channel. Neither of those paradigms are very profitable when you when these shows are maybe getting like tens of thousands of viewers. So the cable company isn't charging charging you very much to watch TNT and TBS. And the advertisers are not paying very much for a show that only get tens of thousands of viewers. These channels are only around because of inertia. I'd say NBC Universal has recognized this as they have started to cut back on the channels that exist. They eliminated the NBC Sports Network. They eliminated the Olympic Channel. At this point, there's very few NBC Universal networks left out there on the broadcast grid say USA Network, but you really have to scratch your head to wonder like what even shows on the USA Network anymore. No, these are the last gasps of a dying medium. 
So, Tim, before we talk about the ratings, I do believe there is a box office story this weekend. Yes, and thankfully it's not Titanic, a 25-year-old movie. Uh, We got Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania this weekend, and we have a Friday number of $46 million. What the heck? I guess I'm just not used to these Marvel movies blowing the doors (laughs) off the box office again, especially since this one um, is middling. Not the best. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that's a ridiculous number and it's going to open to 100 million. I haven't seen that in a while either. Yeah, I wrote a very tepid review of this and I know for a fact I like the film quite a bit better than Kim did. It's just too weird, messy, sloppy, logic flaws. This is probably my least favorite Marvel film other than Eternals since Thor The Dark World. But it's got Kang, David. Everyone's into Kang. It's all about Kang. (laughs) Brilliant. Jonathan Majors is an absolute superstar. And it is just befuddling to me the decisions they made to get to this point and just have him square off against Ant-Man. I mean, it just, there were mistakes made. That's Jonathan Majors, the star of HBO's Lovecraft Country, which you can now watch on the Roku channel. (laughs) Yeah, I I saw the suggestion that the previous two Ant-Man movies were kind of like, okay, yeah, it does tie into the whole MCU, but, you know, you could probably take them out and you wouldn't really miss anything. But this movie they've established as like a linchpin for the whole MCU going forward. And that probably wasn't the smartest idea. Yeah, I mean, really all I need to say about it, and Tim, I'm going to hear it in your voice when I repeat this, it got a B cinema score. Oh, Yeah. So that's the same as Eternals, which means it's tied for the worst cinema score ever for a Marvel movie. And it's one of those things I really believe if you ask people just grade Kang, it would be A++++, but everything else (laughs) down. And there is an actress... When she speaks, I'm just in pain. I mean, in absolute pain. So whatever box office they get on opening weekend is going to be a larger percentage of the box office than we normally see from Marvel because I have questions about the legs. But this is, you know, for holiday weekend, this is pretty terrific, isn't it? Yeah, this is going to be a massive opening. It's going to probably come in with, what, 105, 110 million? 115 is what I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. And uh, a couple of people I trust believe it might actually go a little bit higher than that. Um, It was originally tracking for 135, and then everybody got chased away because of the word of mouth. And so I think we're seeing two very different factors here. Concerned about the quality of the film versus genuine appeal and desire to watch Kang. And I wrote an article about this last week. This is really the start of the next thing in the MCU, because after Avengers Endgame, everything since then has just been waiting. This is the big bad for the next three to four years. And so it's different. And I think people have a desire to see that. Yeah, and it does help that we are on a, it's not a major holiday, but it is a holiday weekend. Schools and a lot of uh, government offices are closed on Monday. So that usually does bump up things on Sunday a little bit. So yeah, I could I guess I could see, you know, 115, 120. But yeah, we have 46 million for, for Friday as we're recording this on Saturday afternoon. And the other thing, we really should shave with Occam's razor here and just think about the fact an Ant-Man movie is probably going to make around 100 million in three days. And mm-hmm. that should never, ever, ever happen. So, no. you know, Pretty remarkable in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Welcome back, Marvel, because you were you were clearly missed. <laughs> and I would say that there's two repercussions of the success of this movie, and both of them arguably related to Jonathan Majors. He is the antagonist in the next Creed movie, so I wonder now if that really helps the success of that movie. Plus, King versus Killmonger, who you got? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> 
And without necessarily spoiling too much, he happens to have put in an appearance in the last season of uh, Loki. And uh, I think we can expect to see more of him in the next season of Loki, which I think might really be a nice little shot on the arm for Disney+. Plus. Yeah, without doing any spoilers about the film, the final lines of dialogue, Kim, are, I know how much you loved it. The thing that flashes on the screen is Kang will return. So they know it sells. Yeah, and one, one more thing about this box office figure. Um, in 2015, the original Ant-Man opened with $57 million. In 2018, Ant-Man and the Wasp, $75.8 million. And now we're talking quite a bit over $100 million. So that's that's impressive. People really are interested in Kang, or at least wanted to get back to an MCU movie where they were familiar with the characters. Okay, let's talk about the ratings now. Yep, we have the Nielsen streaming ratings for Monday, January 16th to Sunday, January 22nd. And we have some long-awaited entries that we were hoping to see and a hilariously laughable chart and not the one you think. The top show, and a mild surprise, is still Ginny and Georgia, another 1.8 billion minutes for its 20 episodes. Because I think we were all hoping that or expecting that the top show for this week would be what's in second. And here's the premiere of that 90 show. 10 episodes, but about 1.6 billion minutes for something that arrived on the 20th. So that's just a three-day number. Yeah, so Tim and I have already had a little uh, argument about this. I was expecting more, but the reason why I was expecting more is because when it came out, we know that it had the top 10 episodes of the week of everything. So in other words, the 10 shows of that 90 show were the 10 shows everybody watched out of everything. But Tim, you countered with the, the obvious fact here. Why why is this still an exceptional number? Yeah, keep in mind this is while it's 10 episodes, this is a sitcom and the episodes range from uh when you look on Netflix like 21 to 30 minutes. Most of them are on the lower end of that. Uh and I added it up. It takes 233 minutes to watch the entire season so yeah we should basically double this, this is a lot of people watch that 90 show and that's why it immediately got a renewal for a second season and i expect an even bigger number next week and by the way if the episodes are only 21 minutes long they're not even trying right <laughs> yeah they, i was going through i'm like okay the first one's 30 minutes fine that that's that's the pilot and all the rest were like 24 22 at least two of them were 20 or 21 three or four minutes of credits because they have to do like all the international voices and whatever right. Oh. Yeah, oh, if that counts the credits too. Oh, yeah, exactly. Right. One of these like 18 minute episodes before you're hitting the button for the next shot, next, next episode. Oh, my God. <laughs> these are glorified YouTube videos and people are still watching them in mass. It's crazy popular. Yeah, the, the limiting factor here was just the length of these episodes. This, this should be a massive number. I expect it to be tops next week. Third, we have Vikings Valhalla still here, 975 million minutes. Wednesday, once again, sticking around forever, 711 million minutes in fourth. Amazon on Prime Videos, Jack Ryan, 465 million minutes in fifth. The Circle in sixth, 366 million minutes. Uh, something else new, Women at War, 330 million minutes for eight episodes. This is a French series, I believe, about women on the home front during World War One. Ah, uh, yes. Yep, you were correct. It originally showed up on Netflix in France in October, and then for this ratings week, everywhere else. That's a, that's a big what the hell. Yeah, that came out of nowhere and did not expect that because I was, it's one of those things where I'm like, wait, did we talk about this? No, we po couldn't possibly have have when I saw what where where it came from. 
No, we did. I remember talking about it, okay. but oh, okay. it's a weird one. Yeah, that's a surprising number of minutes. But I, I guess, again, it's just the way Netflix works, where they just push that new content and people go ahead and, and watch it anyway. Kaleidoscope, we've seen that for a while now, 321 million minutes. Here's something new. This is from Amazon Prime Hunters, 294 million minutes for 18 episodes. The second and final season of this show arrived on January 13th. So this is a full week of ratings for it. We didn't see the first season, but this is uh, actually Al Pacino doing television. Yeah, I think Al Pacino's presence in the second season is smaller than on the first, although he features prominently on the poster. This is a fictionalized account of Nazi hunters in, I think, the 1960s and 70s. In the 70s, yeah. Yeah, it, uh, original, the first season came out in 2020. So actually, I, actually right before the whole pandemic began, February 2020. Got a renewal later in the year, and now we're finally getting the second season, and people were still interested enough in it to catch up with it. We won't see it again because again this is the full week that it had and we've seen that happen with Amazon shows before and it's pretty low on the list so I don't expect to see it again but uh, very interesting that that it had enough interest to to make it. Uh, we do wrap up originals with uh... <laughs> I guess I'm out surprised. This is from Disney Plus. National Treasure Edge of History. 294 million minutes viewed for seven episodes. Yeah, I'm still only two episodes into this. More than anything, what I'm taking away, it's a perfectly average show, but Disney Plus consumers really do have a behavior because this is what we tend to see is the final two or three episodes of the season really get that uptick in popularity compared to the rest of the season, which is why this hadn't charted until now. Admittedly, we've got a slow week, so 294 million usually wouldn't make it. But uh, that just seems to be what people do on Disney Plus. They binge. This did release weekly, premiered in December, because I feel like we we did talk about it, but much longer ago than it would have shown up in the ratings. And yeah, as released released weekly, there are actually 10 episodes in the season. So there's a couple more to go at this point. But yeah, it's just that whole debate of whether people would want a show weekly or they want the whole thing at once. And we could talk about it again in a little bit when we get to a certain show, but they want that appointment viewing. But they also really, really want to see the entire season right now too, because they tend to wait on certain weekly shows till there's more episodes and then go ahead and watch it because we definitely see bumps when the seasons get near completion that people finally check it out and clearly binge everything to that point. Yeah, this was actually one of my what I watched this week things. And the reason why I've only seen two is because that was all that was available at the time. And then I never went back. In fact, when I was looking at the show notes, I went ahead and added it to my Disney Plus watch list so I would remember to watch the end of it. Same thing has happened to us with two other shows with the Doogie Howser reboot and and with uh, Big Shot, the John Stamos show, I'm just not someone who likes to watch things weekly at this point. I'd rather binge. That goes double for National Treasure, which, you know, is telling a giant story arc. So this retro style of releasing doesn't always play well. Plus, don't ever underestimate the return of Riley Poole. <laughs> that guy slept all the way through his one big movie, so. Right? <laughs> all right. Meanwhile, in movies, this is quite possibly the sorriest movies chart since we've started doing the rating segment. Um, You're not lying, dude. This, is, this list is pathetic. It is led by a movie we saw last week, Doggone, 395 million minutes. That's right, folks. Less than 400 million minutes wins during Christmas. I'm not sure it made the top 10. Pretty much, yeah. It's sad. It's, it, it's awful. At least last year, you know, through through these doldrums, we had Encanto crushing everything in its path. So at least that was that was something exciting to look forward to. But yeah, this is this is awful. No one watched any movies this week. Uh, it's mostly things we've seen before. We'll go through it pretty quickly. Glass Onion is still in second, 284 million minutes. 
The hatchet-wielding hitchhiker, which won last week, 236 million minutes. HBO Max's The Menu, still hanging around longer than expected. Maybe that's just because the numbers are so pathetic, 223 million minutes. The Pale Blue Eye, 212 million minutes. Jurassic World Domination is 6, 210 million minutes. And then here's the, all the Disney Plus content. Encanto in 7th, 210 million minutes. Moana, 205 million minutes. And Strange World, still hanging on in 9th with 200 million minutes. And we do wrap up with something new. I guess it's called Jung Yi or Young E? Yeah, the latest dystopian movie from uh, Train to Busan director uh, Song Ho Yun. Yes, it is a Korean sci-fi movie. 188 million minutes. Uh, yeah, it actually premiered January 20th, so this is just a three-day number. Might, might stick around next week, but yeah, just squeaked in because it's such a terrible, terrible week for the movies last this week. Acquired is nine shows we have seen before, once again led by Walking Dead. Uh, another 1.1 billion minutes as people continue to check out the final season. But the one show that we were looking forward to seeing is here in third. This is The Last of Us. 837 million minutes for what's listed as two episodes. But I think we need to point out the same thing that we saw when House of the Dragon was initially on this list is these ratings run Monday to Sunday and the Last of Us episodes are premiering on Sunday. So that two episodes, but that's only it only had one day or maybe even half a day for the second episode. So this is going to grow and in my opinion, explode over the next couple of weeks as it adds episodes. Yeah, I was actually going to mention this if you hadn't, because what we noticed with House of the Dragon is it really took three or four episodes for it to get going. And then past a certain point, it was pretty consistently hovering around a billion minutes. So this is a very, very good start because we need to be honest about the fact House of the Dragon had the Game of Thrones brand behind it. Last of this is a new thing. So this is a really, really impressive start, all things considered. There's a couple of other things that we have to factor in here, of course. Much like House of the Dragon, The Last of Us also airs on HBO, the cable channel. This is all viewership on top of that. On HBO Max, right? Yeah, this is not HBO more, viewership. This, yeah. Yes. And both, I would argue, House of the Dragon and The Last of Us skew younger. And so there's probably a lot of non-TV streaming viewing, so tablets, phones, and so forth. That is just not getting counted here. So while it's only third on the acquired list this week as Tim pointed out of course it's one episode seven days and a second episode that's only one day's worth of viewership so far this should still be considered a juggernaut the last of us is gonna crush it in the ratings yeah i'm expecting just almost exponential growth over the next couple weeks Uh, i imagine it'll plateau towards the end like we saw with house of the dragon but just the word of mouth and discussion over subsequent episodes after its premiere especially around those third and fourth ones. Uh, Yeah, this is going to do some monster numbers when we see those next couple weeks. An interesting week in ratings. We saw big numbers from that 90s show and The Last of Us. Things can only look up on the movies chart uh, over the next couple weeks. I don't know what's coming just yet, but it can't be worse than than this week. I expect that 90s show to be tops on the original chart next week and Last of Us to take over the, the top of acquired chart. I'm just blown away that The Pale Blue Eye has been a top five show on the movies chart. Like a month now. Yes, that's insane. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you, Tim. In our green lights and cancellations this week, Netflix has renewed their reboot of the reality show, The Mole. That was a pleasant surprise. It came out in October and we never saw it on the ratings and there were questions as to whether it would get another season, but I'm sure it wasn't 
all that expensive to for them to to produce. So I'm I ha- I'm happy to see it get a second season, and I do hope they keep Alex Wagner around as the host because she was quite good in it. Yeah, a couple of factors here. The first being that as a reality show, as Tim pointed out, it, it probably doesn't cost a lot to produce, and so it's it's not much of a head scratcher as to whether they want to renew it or not. But the second factor, I think, may be influenced by the success of the traders on Peacock. The fact that only after the traders became a viral sensation was it announced that the mole got a second season is pretty telling. These are somewhat similar programs, reality competitions where people are trying to win money while they get sabotaged by other people also trying to win the money. I think if the traders hadn't been a hit on Peacock, the mole wouldn't have been renewed. Yeah. I also did wonder if that had something to do with it. Also, I was going to mention this on Peacock, but since you brought up the traders, it clearly must be doing very well for Peacock because they were not there initially when the show premiered, but they've added the season of the Traders UK and the Traders Australia to the service. So I think if people just maybe couldn't get enough of it and uh, they added those for for people to check out too. And I'm not sure if I'll find the time, but I am curious to see how those seasons played out as well. Over at Disney Plus, they're cleaning house as Mighty Ducks, Game Changers, and the John Stamos show Big Shots are done after two seasons. That's on us, isn't it? I'm you just said you never you, you started watching Big Shot and never went back to it. So that's why it got canceled. Well, we watched all of season one, just oh. not all of season two. And yeah, I feel bad about it. We're on episode three of season two for the exact yeah. same re- reason I just mentioned. When you start with two and then don't show the other until weekly, we we would have watched it all in a day really if we have options. But this comes down to, we knew last week that Bob Iger was going to cut the uh, budget on content by $3 billion. So this is the start of that. And, you know, honestly, these are the types of shows they're okay on Disney Plus. They usually trend, but they don't dominate. So this is the stuff that kind of falls by the wayside. And sadly, that means we'll see more reality shows on Disney Plus as well, because that's just the way we're heading with the market right now. But to the point of what we've been discussing all episode, David, if you had binged it all in one day, would that have been of any benefit to Disney Plus? In what interest is that to Disney Plus if they were releasing them weekly and they had enough of a hook to keep you subscribing month after month so you can watch all 10 or 12 episodes or what have you, I think that would have been the the bigger appeal. So I'm going to disagree with you in this regard. We were more likely to keep Disney Plus if we knew there were going to be a big shot season three because we really like it. Isn't that true, Kim? I mean, yeah, it's a great little show and John Stamos is fantastic in it. So yes, we'd love to keep watching it if it were available. So that's one of the things. You have to make different calculations here than we have with conventional television broadcasting in the past. It is all about getting people subscribed and keeping them subscribed. And so you're saying, well, they've they've got a thing where they're trying to do that by showing you know three months of content rather than one day of content. That is absolutely valid to an extent. I don't know. I don't think there's one right answer here. It's just the model has changed and we're all kind of evaluating what works best. I do see this as a cost-saving measure after two seasons. Things presumably start getting more expensive in terms of the production. It's bad for cast and crew who then have to go find other jobs and whose salaries now get reset back to lower amounts. So this probably does factor into what Bob Iger is saying about cutting those billions in production costs. But at the same time, 
Disney now has this content, those leftovers that they can take home. You can imagine that all episodes of the Mighty Ducks Game Changers or Big Shots can now be streamed over a holiday weekend on Freeform or Disney Channel. It gives Disney the content to fill up those cable channels until those cable channels are no longer relevant at all. That's exactly correct. And the other thing is you can easily envision some sort of fast channel like Pluto TV or Roku, wherein they're showing Disney teen dramas. And these two programs fit right into that. So, you know, there's a lot of ways we can do this. They're going to monetize the content moving forward in a lot of ways. But right now, they cannot justify the financial outlay. That's where we're at overall with this entire streaming media business. Everybody has suddenly realized that they're overspending and they're having to readjust on the fly. And so shows like this get caught in the middle. At Hulu, the BJ Novak anthology series, the premise will not be getting a second season. I've got a shiny nickel for anyone who could tell me what this show was about, (laughs) which is probably also how much money Hulu made on season one of this show, which is probably why they didn't renew it for a second season. Peacock knows a hit when they see it. Ryan Johnson's Murder of the Week series, Poker Face, starring Natasha Lyonne, has been renewed for a second season. It's great, but this woman's like bad news. Got to stay away from her. (laughs) If she comes to your town, look out. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, Blood and Treasure, which had its first season on CBS and moved to Paramount Plus for its second season, will not see a season three. Well, you got to give them credit. They certainly tried. They knew it wasn't going to work on broadcast. They put it on streaming for season two, but even then it doesn't seem to have really clicked. And so goodbye to them. Okay, as always, we finish up with what's been keeping us busy over the last week. And as David mentioned, we did see Ant-Man Quantumania. And as he also mentioned, I didn't like it as much as he did. And he was sort of middling with it. It's a giant mess until Kang arrives on the scene, which is probably an hour into the film. Jonathan Majors is absolutely terrific as Kang. There are some fun elements in the movie. It just feels disjointed, some bad writing in that early part of the film, some lines that will make you absolutely groan. (laughs) It wasn't necessarily the delivery vehicle for King the Conqueror. I will say that there is a second end credit scene that is a lot of fun. So I'm excited for that reason. And I don't want to say more, but I'm surprised it's doing as well as it is. Raul, how about you? You know, most of the time I turn on my TV these days, it's to watch some winter sports in the background as I'm working on something else. And that something else usually involves watching YouTube on another device. Yes, I'm cheating on my TV with my tablet. This weekend, I've been watching the Project for Awesome on YouTube, which is a live charity event hosted by YouTubers and authors, brothers John and Hank Green. This is an annual event where they live stream over YouTube for 48 hours and bring on a number of of their fellow YouTubers to entertain as they raise money for charitable causes. The first Project for Awesome was back in 2007 when it was easy to game the algorithm on YouTube's front page. The Green Brothers would encourage their community to make videos advocating for different causes and then have that community vote through views and likes on which causes would get charitable donations. This was when just a few thousand views was enough to get you trending on YouTube. The systems become a lot more elaborate since then, but the goal is the same as they split the donations between 
the most popular advocacy videos submitted by the community. There's dozens of videos advocating for charities like the Trevor Project or World Bicycle Relief and donors get cool and fun perks for donating. So everyone wins. One significant perk this year was donated by Ryan Reynolds, who gave the Project for Awesome the Adventure Time watch worn by Deadpool in the movies. uh, And it was auctioned off for, I think, nearly $10,000. As we speak, the Project for Awesome has raised $1.8 million so far this year. The live event began on Friday and runs until Sunday, although you can donate on projectforawesome.com and earn perks until Wednesday. It's a lot of fun to watch and I encourage you all to seek it out. And if you miss it, you can still go to the website and donate. And David, how about you? So uh, in addition to Quantumania, we also started Poker Face, which is absolutely fine. If you're expecting Glass Onion, you're going to be disappointed. That's just the reality of it. This is, you know, the grimier version of the story where, you know, a much, much less glamorous person is doing all the murder mystery solving. But the idea is very clever. And the episodes so far have satisfied and had good mysteries. Don't you agree, Kim? I absolutely agree. And I think it's a little better than just fine. I like it a lot. I think Natasha Leone is, this is exactly the role that she should be playing. It's suited perfectly for her. I'm just going to say that there is an episode with a dog that still cracks me up. Everything about it just makes me laugh. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoy it. And it's a fun mystery of the week type show. Murder, she wrote slash Beretta type TV. And then I actually lied a little bit earlier. Last night when I was working after Kim fell asleep, I went ahead and put on a couple of episodes of Big Shot and the Doogie Howser uh, sequel just to see whether or not they were worth going back to. And what I can tell you is we're going to watch the full seasons of both because there is a second season of the Doogie show coming next month. And I really, really like this. I do. There's actually a sadness here. Uh, a guy who had played on Hawaii Five-0 in the 1960s appears as an uncle on this. And part of the storyline of season one is them trying to save his life. The actor died during the the release of the shows in like episode three. So by the end of the season, you know, the big story is, will they save his life? The real life person was dead by then, which is grim. But it's such a loving, fun show for the Hawaiian lifestyle. And I'm always just such a huge fan of those. And then Big Shot is just well intended. And that's really what we don't have enough of on television is people who maybe are a little broken, but who are trying to be better. And I just never get enough of that. I think that's the reason why I underestimated Ted Lasso as much as I did. I only had the general framework of American in England doing soccer, which, you know, nothing about that is going to appeal to me. But then you watch the show and you realize that is the most glib description of it possible. The same thing applies to Big Shot. It's really about the value of mentoring and how, you know, a lot of times the person getting the mentoring can teach you more than you actually teach them. It's powerful. I really really, really like Big Shot and I'm frustrated it got canceled. I really like Big Shot as well. And yes, I'm always in awe of John Stamos on that show. He is so much better than anybody realizes, I think. 
Thank you for listening to Streaming Into the Void. Please consider subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we welcome your feedback. Remember that we're on social media at Streaming Void and online at streamingvoid.com. If you like what you're hearing, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon at patreon.com slash streamingvoid. Be sure to watch for us again next week. 